Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to Critical Witness. Uh, my name's Phil. We've got our usual lineup of myself and Dan and a guest, and we'll be introducing our guest in a moment. Uh, we're talking about is Christianity a Western religion and a lot of other questions that international students uh, generally ask Western Christians. And that leads into who our guest is, as he's written a book on this very topic. So I'm going to bring both Dan and Peter Teagle onto the screen. And uh, welcome, Peter. Nice to have you with us for this evening. Thank you. Um, we usually we have two questions that remain the same. The first yeah. question and the last question are always the same on this channel. The first question is about you. The last question is about some resources that you can share with us. But uh, in the middle, we could go anywhere. <laughs> well, um, it'd be great just to hear a little bit about you, who who you are, and um, and then your story of how you became a Christian and. We'll get to why you've written a book uh, in a bit, but yeah, what was what's your story of coming to Jesus? Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. It's good to be be on this, and um, yeah, and so I um, I grew up in the northwest of England in Cheshire, and um, I think like many people of my generation, kind of grew up with church being part of life, but certainly not a central part of life. So my parents would have taken me to church maybe a couple of times a month, uh, if mum was particularly keen, maybe three times a month. Um, and um, I had just generally fairly positive view towards it, but except for, for the fact it just seemed rather dull. And about the age of 12, I was kind of hungry to know more. And the reality was that nobody could tell me anything more. It was just go to church and then we don't talk about Jesus outside uh, Sunday morning. So I gave up. I kind of turned my back on the whole thing and declared myself an atheist. Now, uh, I eventually did a, a degree in cell biology, so I was already thinking about science and so forth. Then before university, I went to college, and uh, it, there was a number of Christians in the college. When I say Christians, I mean people who were really had a living relationship with God through Jesus. And this was really new for me. I'd never really come across this before. So I thought, right, okay, time for um, uh, some really kind of full on discussions. And so I would challenge these Christians to debates. And uh, partly it was because I enjoyed being with them. They, they were great people and I would just really enjoyed their company. Uh, but part of me, I think, wanted to know whether it was real. And uh, they kind of uh, struggled with my questions a bit. They weren't, they were, I guess they were quite young themselves. Um, and so I kind of came away thinking that I was winning all the debates. But there was a growing hunger that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And one night that really came to a head where I was looking up into the darkness. I was lying in bed one night and suddenly I felt terribly, terribly alone. Now, this is a really good part of my life. I had lots of friends, a good family. But the universe suddenly seemed really, really empty 
and utterly meaningless. And I suddenly thought, gosh, if I'm right, and if my Christian friends are wrong, then that is it. There is no meaning. I can't pretend that there's any meaning to life or to myself. Hmm. And actually, I wept. I, I, I felt completely stuck between not being able to believe in God, yet not being able to believe in a universe that without meaning. Uh, and within a few weeks, um, I sort of come to the point where I thought, right, I know enough to believe that God could exist. And I went out for a walk and I thought, well, Christianity is really the only option for me. It's what I'd seen work. Uh, and I gave my life to Christ then. And then to cut a very long story short, within uh, a few uh, weeks or months, um, I kind of catapulted into this relationship with God that I never realized was so real. I joined a Bible study and the guy there just answered every question I had. Uh, I would go away and read more and then come back and he'd answer my questions. So I'd go away and read again and, and so on, back and forth. Uh, in fact, actually, he said to me later that he was rather stunned that somebody turned up out of the blue having so many questions. But he was just so patient and it's given me a real respect for uh, people who can answer people's questions like that. But just to finish, um, I kind of was also catapulted into defending my brand new faith because all my friends were horrified. My non-Christian friends were horrified that I'd become a Christian. So from day one, they are challenging me uh, absolutely. How can you believe this? Is it true? And so we were debating constantly about that. So that was really the beginning of my Christian faith. That's one. It's uh, nice to hear all that um and, and sort of get the background of you so you've obviously all that's happened within the context of uh england yes <laughs> I, I i thought it'd be quite interesting just to just to hear the now there we've got the banner going across talking about yes. christianity from other cultural perspectives and we've got three yes. white british men <laughs> talking about yes. cultural perspectives and is christianity uh, a western religion so it'd be good just to hear why how you got to writing a book about international students and their questions mm -hmm. they ask um and then sort of give a bit of background why mm -hmm. it, should we we listen in that sense and i'm happy to share a bit about my background because it's not as straightforward as that um mm -hmm. but i'd be interested to yeah what, what got you to writing a book about um christianity or western religion sure so so really i've only just told you part of the story which is uh, how i came to to faith in christ um, but that is just really the beginning, because mm. um, sometimes I talk about my life being the potato eating years and the rice eating years. Um, so really, before going to university, I had uh, virtually no experience of any other culture, probably the opposite of you, Phil. Um, I had no exposure to any other religion. And, and so I guess just before going to university, I did this kind of bit of a, a, a Christian outreach in, in, uh, in West Bromwich. And that area was very predominantly South Asian. And I was, was amazed, really, because I suddenly thought, gosh, there's an awful lot more people in the world than I've experienced. And so when I went to university just a couple of weeks after that, my next door neighbor was from Sri Lanka. He was a Hindu, uh, a girl from my Bible study group, a Christian from Singapore, who um, uh, later became my wife. I'd been married for 27 years. Um, and um, between who is now my wife and, and myself, we, we basically had lots of friends who are from different cultures and different religious backgrounds. And all of us really were thinking about how our faith relates to each other. 
So we had um, debates with, with Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and people who are none of the above. But what was, what was a key difference for me is that even those who didn't have a specific religion per se, were not usually atheists in the way that my friends were back home and like I was. They were not kind of Western atheists. We can come back to that term uh, later. Uh, so they weren't asking prove it to me. They were asking me how Christianity relates to their culture and whether, you know, and, and basically how to understand it. Mm-hmm. So fast forward a number of years after Lynette and I got married, uh, went to live in China for a year. Uh, we studied in Bible college, um, did our master's degree in Christian ministry uh, and theology in Singapore. And it was in a college that was uh, set up to train Asian graduates uh, to lead the church in Asia. And I was the only Western student. Hmm. So everything was contextualized. Everything was applied. Basically, we're looking not only at uh, how the Bible applies to particular cultures. And when I say particular cultures, everything from rural Pakistan to uh, tribal Myanmar to uh, um, urban Bangkok, uh, all the way through to Japan and everywhere in between, and me. But also we were looking at the fact that the Bible itself is not a Western book and how it actually related in some ways better to some of the cultures that we were, uh, that my friends were from and that we were dealing with. And and just to say that that since then, we've been working full time with international students for the last 20 years, six years in Birmingham and 14 in Oxford. And that's where we met. So (laughs) we're with friends international. Yeah, it's been great to have this uh, conversation with you. It's been possibly a long time coming. Um, Dan, have you got any questions following up from that at this point? Uh, No, I'd be interested to know a little bit more about... um, Mm how you, you said that the, the bible obviously not being a western book um mm. and so how it, it, i guess it'd be interesting to have some examples about you know how does it fit better than where with a with an asian within an asian context rather sure. than a western one like what what are some of the I, i'd be interested to find out some examples yeah so i think uh, western culture has has changed a lot in the last few hundred years since the um since the enlightenment and and so on and uh, we are far more individualistic. Um, and um, there's, there's two things. One, one is, is how, uh, I guess, um, culturally collectivist the Bible is. This is a lot more about we and us. And um, when uh, we, t- we talk about an, an individual uh, commitment to Christ, and that is obviously very necessary. But a lot of the students that I work with, the, the implications of that uh, the ramifications of, of a decision to follow Christ uh, spread throughout the family. And so really, um, we need to kind of look at how the Bible uh, explains about our responsibility to our families. Uh, there's a very natural a kind of assumption in Scripture uh, that we will um, re- we will honour those who are older than us. Um, and also we will uh, listen to. There's, I remember being in, in the youth group, um, my late teens, and being told that there is a a distinction between children who should obey their parents, according to, I think it's Ephesians, and, um, and, and adults who only need to honour their parents. Uh, well, two problems with that. First of all, when do you become an adult? Is it the day you become 18? Uh, because in my wife's background, um, being uh, technically you are an adult at 18, but in some ways you're not quite an adult until 
you either leave home or you get married or or something or you finish education that that line between being a child and being an adult is quite blurred and also even into well into adulthood uh, you you don't ever stop being your parents child there are certain cultural expectations of what uh, the next generation will have the older generation will have on you even like us in our 40s and 50s um, also probably the biggest thing in terms of what we experience when talking to students is the reality of the unseen world so um, I've done quite a bit of research about um, uh, about miracles and healing and, um, and and evil spirits and so forth which all of which are in scripture but I know that if I talk about that in a Western setting at a university level, I'll be laughed out of the room. Hmm. And yet, probably most of the world is quite okay with that. I mean, I remember working in a, a lab in um, Singapore General Hospital uh, and um, in the pathology lab. And it was a time of year where, where people um, kind of talk about there being what they call hungry ghosts, which are spirits who they don't have ancestors, don't have descendants who will uh honor them uh, and all around the lab people were talking about uh, their experiences of spirits and i thought that was very interesting because because these are well-educated people were in a laboratory and yet they were talking about evil spirits as a normal part of everyday life uh, and i can't have that conversation in certain parts of the west because simply uh, it is thrown out and rejected without even examining any evidence Yes, that's that's fascinating. It's, it's, it's um, again, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you think whenever you're, you know, whatever culture you find yourself in, that that's the kind of norm, um, especially when it comes to things like science. And, and uh, whereas people, I guess, elsewhere have uh, a much broader, um, yeah, a broader scope of what what can, yeah. you know, what's acceptable conversation. Yeah, I can't. Um, For example, um, if you were to say, well. Uh, um, uh, why something happened you know if if they say somebody is driving a car and they get into an accident uh, we tend to think well why did that happen so we, we look for naturalistic reasons which is fair enough we look for was he driving too fast was it was the road wet was he had he drunk too much alcohol and those sort of things uh, we don't think of kind of evil spirits caused it and that's probably right because that would probably stray into superstition but many parts of the world will say, well, yes, those physical factors are true. Uh, there is empirical evidence for that to be true. But there may also be underlying other worldview issues. They may have been born in the wrong month or uh, may have been a curse. On them. Now, I wouldn't necessarily ascribe that reason, uh, but, but many people do. Um, and so people live both in a naturalistic world where evidence evidence based but also in a supernatural world where there's other factors that come to play. These things two, two go together. Um, I think that the, the issue is that in the West, we have gone with one because that feels secure to us, but we've discarded the other. I think that's the problem. So we're not even willing to accept that it might happen, uh, that, that, for example, miracles might happen, because that just doesn't sit, fit our worldview. And at that point, we actually become very biased and very blind. Um, I can, you know, if you explain, I mean, for example, I was in um, Durham University giving a talk um, on this topic uh, and somebody said, but what about the miracles in the Bible? I said, well, what about them? He said, because they couldn't have happened, right? 
And so why, why couldn't they have happened? So if you think of God as being the supernatural being who has infinite power, if you're saying that these things can't happen, then what you're saying is that God is not really God. Um, and he kind of understood that and changed the question. Yeah, it's interesting because we're, um, I guess, my, again, I'm not particularly well-traveled or uh, anything like that, um, but it, it seems like in the West we're, um, okay, so the rest of the world is more similar to sort of pre, pre-Christian, you know, in the sense mm-hmm. that they they have transcendent beliefs you know so it's set there is a trans when a transcendent world beyond uh you know this this uh this realm whereas mm-hmm. we're kind of pre-christian uh we're post-christian in in the west yeah. where you know we have you know we've we've left we've left those sort of childlike beliefs behind you know there's no we know there's no transcendent world you know um have you, have you ever read much about like charles taylor or anything have you he, 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 so he talks about as a philosopher talks about um um that we're kind of in in the west now we're kind of haunted by transcendence because we've now sort of left right. where we're we're haunted by the fact that you know a lot of the beliefs we have were kind of rooted in these uh you know in a transcendent realm and now we've kind of thrown it off but we're kind of haunted by it but it's yeah. uh yeah yeah um, i think it's stuck actually because i think a lot of people hunger for the transcendence but they have got no framework um, so we, I, I tend to find that, that people have uh, knee-jerk reactions to things, you know. So I remember talking to a friend of mine recently who, whose husband is not a Christian, and I said, "Oh, um, is there any particular reason why?" She said, "Because of science." Hmm. Wow. Now, <laughs> just that because of science. Now her husband is actually um, uh, a prison warden and uh, not degree educated, so certainly not um, suggesting that. Um, uh, he was uh, unintelligent. He's a very intelligent guy, but um, he was he, the, the fact that in our church of thirty people we've got five researchers in the biological sciences wouldn't necessarily cut ice. It's simply I can't believe because of science. So um, I mean, my daughter, when she was ten years old, came home from school one day, primary school, and said, uh, "Daddy, I don't believe in the Big Bang." And I said, well, why not? And she said, because you can't believe in the Big Bang and believe in God. Now, she was 10. So I said, well, where did this come from? She said that in her class, I think it was the time that the the CERN um, people were doing a particular experiment to kind of recreate some part of the Big Bang. So they discussed it in class. And some of the other children, I don't know where the teacher stood, but some of the other children were saying, yeah, but if you believe in the Big Bang, you can't believe in God. Now, um, my daughter has been quite an active Christian since she was very young as a, her own personal choice. So she was then stuck between uh, believing in God as she'd grown up with, and then her classmates saying, but you can't believe in God and believe in the Big Bang. So she rejected the Big Bang without necessarily understanding what the Big Bang was. Yeah. Um, but then I think her classmates were also doing the same thing. These were 10 year olds who knew nothing about the Big Bang nor about creation or what the Bible said about it. But they had been told or they had accepted a line that said, if you believe in the Big Bang, then you can't believe in God. And so it was a false distinction which forces people over one line or the other. Now, when I work or talk to primarily non-Western students, I don't get that. I don't get that kind of uh, forced dichotomy. Um, In fact, actually, that's quite rare. So when people say, um, 
people promote atheism in the, the kind of I guess the the materialistic sense like I was the part of the problem I have with that is that it is a it is showing as much as anything a western mindset rather than evidence it's based on a western mindset rather than a reality it's really interesting that, that that's the case. I mean, I, I did notice that one of your questions is, is Christianity compatible with science? Hmm. Do you answer that differently with international students in mind? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> I nearly didn't write that chapter, actually, because I thought the people would come to it with some certain certain things in mind. Um, but, but yes, absolutely. Um, uh, a lot of some of the questions in my book are not necessarily different questions to the kinds of questions that, Western students would ask, but non-Western students will be looking at it from a different perspective. They will be looking for a slightly different answer. So, so with with that one on science, so mm. in in the West, we're very much naturalistic, scientific that mm. evolution couldn't be guided or or anything like that. It's yeah. there's no miracles, there's no transcendence, as, as we've just discussed. So, how would you? respond from a perspective what do you what do you see international students trying to see in a question like that i, I think in, to some extent they um have uh you know it, it, just as just like that group of 10 year olds they 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 will have been fed a certain line of science and religion don't don't mix but but that's quite a superficial. It doesn't take much to kind of unpick that. Hmm. Um, so many, many uh, Western students I've talked to, um, uh, many friends that I grew up with would have. You don't unpick that in a minute. That, that's, a, that's a very deep, deeply held belief that science and, and, and faith are completely incompatible. But say a student from Asia, uh, that would be well. Yeah, I've heard that, but I'm not quite sure that that really bears out in reality. And I think part of the reason is that um, spiritual realities are just talked about and experienced a lot more in the non-Western world. So, um, I mean, uh, people from a Muslim background will believe quite happily in dreams, uh, mm -hmm. in in miracles. Um, uh, there, are one of the, my friends from from Vietnam. When she became, well, before she became a Christian, she started studying the Bible. Well, her issue was, was um, she she didn't not believe in Jesus' miracles. Her problem was that she had also come across Buddhist healers as well, and we had to kind of help to make the distinction between Jesus' kind of healing and the kind of folk healers that uh, she had come across. And the, these guys are not necessarily just charlatans. I mean, in some ways they are. But there is also a spiritual reality, there's spiritual forces which people, um, spirit possession, spirit, um, you know, fear of spirits, all these things are, are normal in many parts of life. Now, in some ways, in the kind of sanitized city areas, it's less in your face, but it's there. Mm. And so when you say, uh, when you say to somebody from a non-Western country, I mean, again, we, we think of these sort of things, you have to generalize a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but if you say uh, uh, only the physical universe exists, the only thing which is real is that which is uh, can be investigated through science uh, or observed through our senses. Uh, a lot of uh, people from the Western world will go, 
Mm, yeah, okay, yes, or definitely yes. But when you say that in Asia, it's actually seen as a little bit naive, mm. a little bit uh, shallow, because life is just not that like that. It's not that simple. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Just going back a little ways, it'd be interesting to flesh out a little bit more the, the word contextualization, because I, mm. I think it's, I was reading or listening to someone recently, mm. and they'd recognized that they only touched on other cultures when they started looking at mission yes. uh, within seminary. So it's very, very much contextualization is sort of a small part of what they'd looked at in their entire degree and it yeah. had to be within what they had to take that module it wasn't like one that they, <laughs> everyone had to take yeah um, i don't know how common that is i don't i don't know but i think it's something that i've become more aware of as i've worked with um with friends international that this idea that there's something about recognizing who your audience is yes you might have to generalize to some extent but you can mm. generalize in a way that's includes a wider variety of people um so i'd just be interested just to sort of define that a little bit um when when you say contextualize yeah how like is there a process is there a definition that you've come across that you use um what kind of things are we looking for (laughs) yeah yeah of course I mean, when it, the word contextualization is a bit like the word existentialism. You, know, you throw it around and it sounds very impressive, but nobody quite knows what it means. <laughs> um, and um, uh, I mean, actually, if you take a step back, um, it really comes down to it, it isn't a bolt on. You know, I've heard people start to get uncomfortable when they talk here about contextualization because we kind of think, oh, hang on. Is that starting to kind of pick apart the gospel or to 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 um to um i think they confuse it a lot with syncretism you know mixing of christian beliefs with with local beliefs and so on it's not that at all Uh, contextualization happens every single time we open the bible um every time we open the bible and uh read the words which have been written uh they've been written in a set of uh related cultures in uh, between two and three thousand years ago, roughly, uh, in Eastern Mediterranean, ancient Near East, and, and God has seen fit to express Himself in and through those cultures, and, and so it's going to be coloured by the the cultures that existed at the time. And so when we read a passage from the Psalms or from the Gospels or wherever, we then read and interpret those. Um, as God expressing himself in that particular way, in that particular time, and we draw out of them, quite naturally, um, eternal truths, things which are always true no matter where you go, the nature of God, the nature of the gospel. And then we reapply them, uh, we contextualize them into our own life and situation. Um, and so contextualization is not a bolt-on. It is fundamental to the whole uh I guess, um, theology of, um, of revelations, how God has revealed himself. Um, he has not revealed himself ec- apart from cultures. Now, the danger, I guess, is what, what people are alarmed about, is the, the thinking that, well, you know, if it was, if it was true 2,000 years ago, then it can't be true today, or, you know, that's just what they believed in those days. We believe something different. 
so we what we need to understand is that that as evangelicals we we believe in uh it, the bible is authoritative authoritative in the sense that it was already originally written so the person who sat down and wrote that to those people meant a certain thing now if we can understand as near as possible what that certain thing was we should be able to then contextualize it into our own culture the, the trick comes when we are working with another culture or within friends international several cultures at once which is yeah. often the challenge um uh, to to make it relevant or to to say well this is what's what this means and this is how you can see it um, and that's a complex process and you need to be very careful but thankfully we have the holy spirit who's speaking directly to people as well mm. um, and that is when you sometimes come across uh, people who will get something in a way that we would perhaps struggle with example being um when i taught on the um um um, the, the prodigal of the lost son, and the, sorry, the parable of the, of the lost son, or the prodigal son, from Luke 15 in Cambridge, and I had so many students coming up to me later and saying, "We Asian people are like the older son." They'd seen something in it, where he says, "That's us," um, which I thought was fascinating. There's there's so much, and as I love going to the prodigal son. I mean, you, you've heard me do a practice talk on the prodigal son. <laughs> so, um, but there's just so much in there that I think points out the, it's a really good example of how we contextualize that story and read into it things that it's not saying. And I, I've shared it before in, in a, a, a UK context and going, so what, what has the son recognized in himself? And, and the answer was always a, uh, a broken sinner. <laughs> okay, what, what do you mean by that? Well, he's guilty. Yeah. And it was very much that language. He, he's realised he's guilty, and he he wants to repay his debt. And, and I went, well, that's not in there. <laughs> 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 that, that, that language isn't in the story at all. It's mm. that he's not worthy, mm. and there's shame, and he's being clothed, and it's honour. Mm. This isn't guilt, and innocence in the sense that we want it to be from romans but it's uh, its own language in the culture and i i think drawing that language out sure there's maybe insinuated guilt <laughs> in there that he needs yeah. his sin forgiven but what does that aspect of his sin look like where well, it looks like his shame is now clothed he's given honor and brought back into the family uh, the, when i recognized that it was quite interesting because I hadn't really come across contextualization when I was in Papua New Guinea. Mm. So growing up in Papua New Guinea, I was around a lot of Americans, a lot of um, Australians, a lot of Westerners in Papua mm. New Guinea, uh, translating the Bible into the local languages. And oh, yeah, Wycliffe Bible translators are wonderful and, and highly uh, worthy cause, but yeah, it was only until I came and started working with international students that I recognized this word contextualization started recognizing shame and honor and went, well, that's very much like Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Why didn't I hear that language in the school that I was at and around Papua New Guineans? Mm -hmm. And since then I've been interacting with my Papua New Guinean mates who uh, have been impacted and, and there's been a lot of conversation now about race because of American friends mm -hmm. and they're suddenly going, well, my theology has just been thrown up <laughs> in the air a little bit because yeah. mm -hmm. you're talking about um, this sort of 
race and culture and things and i don't necessarily see my Papua new guinean culture in what you're telling me i see the american culture that i've absorbed and now mm. i've got to and, and you you do have this word thrown up a lot decolonization but yeah. there is an aspect where that that wrestling has to happen where the gospel has not been contextualized well enough mm. you end up with well, the the most blatant example in Papua New Guinea that I can think of is you end up with uh, people wearing suits in tropical climates because they feel they have to at Bible school, mm-hmm. um, and and so it's, it's things like that where you go, well, that, that's the, the way you dress when you preach. <laughs> that's yeah. uh, that's not as necessary as shame and honour in the gospel and seeing your how your sins are forgiven. But th- that's some examples of contextualization that I've picked up some of them from you <laughs> so it's, um i dad how, how much have you interacted with this kind of idea of contextualized contextualization is it something that you've no i mean i've read a couple of but i think we've discussed um previously a couple of books that we've, we've written is it through through western eye i can't remember the the name of the book oh misreading scripture through western Mis- eye, yeah yeah misread so that yeah that that was really helpful because mm. it's hard isn't it because you you can't you know when you're talking about the prodigal son you can't help but interpret scripture through your mm. own cultural lens yeah and, and i think because because shame yeah honor and shame is not part of our culture you um you, you use the only language you understand you're fluent yeah. in which is guilt and, and um, you know, and I think that's why we we often it's not even it's it's not even that it's necessary. I mean, it is wrong in a way, but it's not. There is some truth to that, you know, of the guilt, you know, of of of, of understanding some some guilt within there. But I don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? Because I think um, the more I read that book, I just think I've misunderstood a lot of scripture. And uh, and uh, say again, it is uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it is uncomfortable because um, because I, I find it quite difficult because I think you know oh you know I think I've understood something and God has spoken mm. me through that and then I've kind of read something I think actually I'm not even sure that that is you know a legitimate reading of of the scripture. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, know, I, I find it quite problematic. It's one of the most problematic things I find is 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 actually trying to understand scripture because mm. we. Um, because we are so different culturally, like you're saying, you know, this scripture is written two to three thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and um, completely different culture, uh, com- lots of different, uh, completely different assumptions about how mm-hmm. the world works. Um, you know, I- I'm living in this very secular culture. You know, in, in a way, it's, uh, it doesn't make sense, but a secular Christian, like I-, I, you know, I view the world through a very material lens, and it's very difficult for me as a as a Western Christian. To yeah. think about spirits, you know, and and uh, evil spirits and things like that. So when I, I often think when I read scripture, I, I kind of, I find those bits uncomfortable because it's not, it's not part of my, it's not that it's necessarily not necessarily part of my worldview, but I find it hard to live that aspect out. And yeah. I think, um, and I know that's bad. Like I know that's not yeah. right, but I think that's the again. I'm going to go back to Charles Taylor. He talks a lot about this. Is is we are. Uh, you know things have been uh, the, the sacredness of the of the, the world i inhabit feels mm-hmm. like it's been the enchantment of it, it disenchantment i live in a, a kind of disenchanted world and i view scripture through through, through that lens yes. um i do find it quite uncomfortable 
Yeah, I think it can be uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> when we were in, in Bible college, um, there was a uh, we had a series of lectures on theology of the family, and um, one of the early uh, lectures, the, the American, so I should say, uh, Asian American lecturer, so someone from the China, Chinese background uh, who had grown up in the Philippines but had gone to the States as a young person, married a, a white uh, American. Uh, and then gone to Singapore to teach this this course. Uh, and um, one of the things that she said was quite outright. She said, the biblical model is the Western nuclear family. And <laughs> we all kind of went, what? <laughs> and she, she pointed to um, the, the, the part in Genesis where it says, um, and Jesus repeated, that um, uh, for this reason, a, father, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. She said there, that means that we should have nuclear families, not extended families. And and she was talking to a class full of people who lived in an Asian family, including me, because I, at weekends I was living with my, well, normally, apart from during the week, we were staying with my wife's family in, an, in a multi-generational setting. Um, and um, it... <laughs> Intrinsically, it just felt what she was saying was wrong. But because I'd also grown up in a nuclear family, I, I wasn't quite sure why it was wrong. Um, and then I kind of looked at it again, and I realized that, that she was superimposing uh, her pre her assumptions because although she had kind of the opposite of me in some ways, she had grown up in an Asian setting, that she found it very um, hurtful and she had difficulties growing up. Um, and so she had wholesale adopted her um i guess uh, white american uh, husband's pattern of, of life and then read scripture saying oh no you're supposed to leave your father and mother you're not supposed to live with them whereas that really isn't what it's talking about it's talking about the uh, order of um uh, of authority so for example when uh, in, in a traditional chinese family when a son marries a wife the son continues to be under his mother in terms of authority but also the wife comes under the mother as well and so if there's a disagreement um, the son has to go with the mother not with the wife uh, and that can obviously produce problems in the marriage but that's precisely what the, the scripture is talking about it's talking about that authority it's saying no no when you get married your spouse is your is who you are that you know, you're one flesh. You're not kind of you. You, you relieve the, the authority of your parents, um, but you still respect them. You still honour them, but you you leave that direct authority. So that was a way in which she had brought to the table, if you like, no disrespect intended. She's a good friend. So, um, she brought to the table those those preconceived ideas. I think we do that a lot of the time, but I think also you have to look at scripture with a certain amount of humility, to say the least. Uh, and, and sometimes we do get things wrong, but, but God has been able to. I mean, I remember an uh, African man sitting next to me in church and say, what do you do for a living? And uh, I said, well, I teach contextualization. That was one of the things I did at the time. Uh, and he said, well, the missionaries came to Africa and they didn't contextualize at all. But God still worked. Mm. <laughs> I thought, yeah, he <laughs> <laughs> often works despite us. But that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't. Uh, have the attitude of doing what Paul did, becoming all things to all men, mm. people, not men. Yeah. Mm. 
I don't, on that, I, I keep coming back to the, um, the Colossians 2, I think, where it's the, there's two verses where Paul asks people to pray for him that they, the door will be opened. <clears throat> but the next verse is, but I might speak clearly. So there's, there's the, sure, God does work despite us, <clears throat> but there is a onus on us to prepare and to, to do our bit and and that that intention is is quite important and and part of the the heart behind contextualization yeah uh, so i mean for example the the the, the text i've just quoted the one corinthians 9 uh where paul says um i have become all things to all men so that by all possible means i might save some and you kind of think well hang on a minute paul you, you're getting a little bit inflated idea of your own importance here you are not the one who's bringing people to christ it's the holy spirit well, of course, he believes that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in that context, he's he's emphasizing his own responsibility to do what he can. And the other thing from that text is that he keeps using the word become. I became, I became, which is also in Philippians chapter two. Jesus became as a man. He became a servant. It's, it's what we call the incarnation. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, lots of good stuff in that. Dan, you look like you're about to ask. Go. No, as I say, it'd be interesting. I, I, I really like to explore a bit more about the fact um, and the main question about whether Christianity is a, a Western religion sure, yeah. uh, and how and how that's perceived uh, around the world. Because I remember, um, you know, speaking to, to Muslim friends, um, and they very much conflate Christianity with with the West and the yeah. West with but we're both. They're both sort of synonymous with each other, which mm. is very different to um probably the views of people often within the west perhaps not so much in the us but at least in europe um in, in most countries that there's uh, they're not necessarily considered by the people within it as as one and the, one and the same sure yeah no that that was um so um kind of breaking the book around yeah I do i'll make you make you full screen as well there you go it's christianity <laughs> western religion yeah the, the second part is and other questions that international students ask so Technically, that's only one of the questions out of 20 I address. But in some ways, it's, you know, I keep, I keep coming back to that issue through the book. Um, yeah, it, it is a way to start. Uh, OK. <clears throat> we talk about origins. Um, you know, I, I always find it interesting that, that, well, Jesus had to come to some place at some time. The fact that God has chosen to reveal himself uh, ultimately through Jesus. Uh, Jesus had to be somewhere. Uh, but God chose somewhere which isn't uh, in Europe or really in Asia or certainly not in Africa, but in, in the crossroads between these places. And if we think about it, if you're from the West, it feels Eastern, but if you're from the East, it feels Western. Uh, now, strictly speaking, it's not kind of in the middle. I don't think there is a middle. But I guess it was a reasonable place to choose. And then, but, but from there, um, the gospel obviously went out. Now, um, uh, Thomas almost certainly arrived in as far as South India, and some of the other apostles went as, into Persia and other parts of uh, the East. But because of the um, uh, ease of transport, the use of Koine Greek, uh, the Pax Ramona, the, the, and the uh, uh, peace of Rome, political stability to the West, and also the fact that there is the um, Mediterranean Sea, just all men that, that, that things traveled more quickly to the West and got established. Also, in the East, there are a lot of 
very big um, empires and, and, and civilizations which were more resistant than said Northern Europe, which is basically uh, wasn't, apart from the Romans, there wasn't much else in terms of structure. Uh, so really Christianity has been associated with the West because it, it kind of got established there more firmly, more quickly. And so it then started to accumulate uh, Western trappings, Western packaging, and it is packaging. Such a big part of the New Testament is basically trying to address the fact, hang on, these people are not Jews. How do you do the Jesus thing without being Jewish? Now, for most of us, that's not even a question. But but that was the big question then. So, so the issue of contextualization runs all the way through Acts. How do you do Christianity when you're not Jewish? Uh, but then Christianity then picked up other kind of cultural packaging, Western packaging. And so everyone would say, well, how do you become a Christian when you're not Western? And it's the same process all over again. I mean, in reality, there are just so many Christians who are not Western. And I think, um, I don't know the statistics, but but Christianity is so predominantly not Western. It's almost ridiculous to suggest that it yeah. is. Um, but there are certain kind of, I mean, for example, I, we visited a church in, in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Now, some colleagues had also visited the same church. They came out thinking, gosh, isn't it sad that that church is so westernized? We came out thinking completely the opposite. Yeah. You see, externally, it did look a bit westernized. It was a Southern Baptist church. Um, they, they used robes in the choir. It, you know, they all faced the front in a particularly kind of, um, I guess, American Baptist way. But the way that they sang, the way that they did stuff, the way that they related to each other was not Western at all. It was entirely um, Vietnamese. Hmm. Um, and so, but I still think that that, that people, it, it's a bit of a lazy way of thinking. It's a little bit like saying, uh, oh, I don't believe in religion because of science. You know, it's just a bit too easy an excuse to say, oh, Christianity is Western. But the other reason I think is, we talk, talked about your Muslim friend, is that um, one of the difficulties I had in writing the book is how to distinguish between Christianized cultural features and people who are really born again and followers of Jesus. It's very hard to explain the difference. Um, but it is, you know, a lot of things we count as Christian isn't Christian at all. Hi there. This is Phil Dunkoff. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe, share the episode and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you get, is this a, a sort of um, objection you get a lot, you, you hear from international students is that, you know, it's perceived as as being Western, I don't know, almost like decadent in a, in, in a way that um, compared to, to, to perhaps their own, you know, traditional, um, you know, beliefs or Eastern beliefs. You know, Eastern, uh, even over here, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, you know, even... Um, you know, Eastern beliefs are seen sort of as, as exotic, and and um, there's something kind of cool about them. Um, yeah. Where in in a way that that 
Christianity is 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 not. You know, it's it's um, it's old. Something we're kind of embarrassed about uh, a little a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, is it, and 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 I, and I think especially more. I think more recent history in regards to um, you know, I think that did the Christianity a lot of damage, especially in Africa, um, and, and um, is you know uh, you know colonialism, you know, and um, and how that got connected with Christianity in the continent of Africa itself. Um, which is unfortunate given, you know, how influential early African Christians were. And I think, you know, the first state church was uh, African. You know, I think it was Nubia, uh, which is, is it sort of northern Sudan and southern Egypt, which would be, you know, the first before the Roman Empire. It was a, it was a Christian state, um, you know, Augustine and, you know, et cetera. But is that something you do you kind of get that from? Do you hear that often? Is that something? Yes and no. I think one of the advantages of working with international students is that they, they're not looking at Western culture from afar. They're experiencing it. Um, and one of the things I've noticed even from my own undergraduate days, which is going back 30 years or more, uh, is that international students often see the difference between student life in general and their Christian friends. Uh, and uh, I've had Muslim Buddhist students tell me they see the difference very clearly. Um, it's quite stark, particularly at university level. There's a huge difference between the way that um, their Christian Union members, uh, friends live and their classmates in other parts of the university. So you, you might still get that articulated, but generally speaking, people can see that there is a difference. Um, and um, my Vietnamese friend I mentioned just now uh, said that she was attracted to Jesus, but she wasn't attracted to Western culture. And so she saw also that if she was going to be a Christian at all, it was to be a Vietnamese Christian, not a Western Christian. Um, so I, th I, think the, I think there are still questions about um, uh, colonialization um, I think it's one of the things I try to address in the book is uh, the reality that sometimes um, Christianity got mixed up with uh, colonialization for, for, well, basically because Christians just couldn't get into certain countries, China being one of them, except through some of the things which Western powers did. But also you've got in India where the, the East Asia, East India Company uh, did not allow where, um, missionaries to come in. They refused to have missionaries in India. It was the hardest place to go with missionaries because the East India Company was too busy making money. They didn't want missionaries anywhere near it. It had to. It was an act of parliament that forced them to actually have missionaries there. But but a lot of people don't know that sort of thing. Um, so yes, you do get one. I think it depends very much on whether people have experienced real Christianity, whether they've met real Christians, because instantly that becomes a relational thing. They see it work and then they go, right, well, that just must be history. But if, if people are predisposed to kind of want to catch you out or, or debate, then, of course, they're going to come with those sort of things. But generally speaking, I don't get that an awful lot. It always seems like it's one of those things. It's sort of it's superficially true in a way but fundamentally wrong 
Yes. <laughs> like, like, it, it's, yeah. the, it's the whole thing with, um, you know, like when people give you that, that reason, you know, why, why don't you believe in God? Uh, mm. well, because I believe in science. Um, it is, again, there's, there's something superficial about, about that, uh, that sort of trivially, you know, yeah. uh, interesting about it, but it's fundamentally wrong. And even that self is a philosophical argument, not science. There's nothing necessary mm. about science that means you can't, sure. um, uh, but, um... There are two two things which people look for when they're uh, investigating Christianity. You know, quite apart from sort of learning about Jesus and studying the Bible and so forth. Two two things people look for. My wife is doing a PhD, and uh, the reasons why Chinese students study the Bible in the UK universities. And one is they need some. Uh, they need to know uh, that it works. They, they uh, either they need to see an answer to prayer, they need to see someone's life change, they need to experience something, um, and uh, this can be quite a simple thing. Um, <laughs> I have a friend who's a, a, a researcher in, in um, immunology, and uh, she met Christians for the first time. Uh, she uh, was talked to; they, they told her about prayer, and she said, "Well, I've never tried praying before." They said, well, why don't you pray to Jesus? She said, what shall I pray about? They said, pray about anything. So she prayed about her research. That week, she had a major breakthrough in her research, quite by a surprise. And she got a paper out of it, and it, f- it fueled her research for months to come. After that, it was just a matter of, well, I just need to find out more. And once she found out, she was able, she was uh, happy to make a commitment. So it's in her mind, it worked. She'd done the experiment, and the experiment had proved correct. She believed. So it needs to work. But also that people need to have their imagination equipped. And this is one reason why I write the book the way I do with stories and examples and illustrations, because if someone can't imagine something, they won't believe it. The, the imagination is a powerful tool to understanding. You know, you can technically believe that Jesus is God. But if you can't really imagine how that works for you, if you can't imagine being a Christian from your culture, then you can talk about it till the cows come home, but actually you won't accept it because you just can't imagine it. When you, when you say you want, they need to see it work, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining that for many international students to go back as a Christian would be terrible news to their family. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do you, what do you do about that? I mean, obviously uh, for, for Christians who, who, who go back, I mean, a lot of them are, are obviously aware of that, I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that when I say about they need to see uh, that Christianity works, that that they would not be satisfied. And I think that it's really right, correct, that they should think this way, <clears throat> that Christianity um, is not just simply a, a set of beliefs that we ascribe to. If their life hasn't changed, if Jesus hasn't been real to them, if they haven't seen answers to prayer, then... It's a little bit like um, it's a little bit like when my wife first arrived in Britain. She always wore thick woolly jumpers and jeans and boots because she was cold. And she's also enjoying wearing those clothes because in Singapore it's thirty degrees, it's ninety percent humidity. You just don't wear those kind of clothes. But when she goes home, those woolly jumpers go into a cupboard. They're forgotten about. They're just a memory of her time in the UK. Um, I think some students try on Christianity to see if it fits. Right. 
uh, and they, they like it. They think, oh, this is comfortable. It seems to fit well. But as soon as they go back home, suddenly it becomes uncomfortable. It doesn't fit because uh, the family are against it. It's inconvenient. It doesn't fit with their working hours. They're surrounded by other religious expressions that the grandparents want them to, to sacrifice to them, to their dead spirits and so forth. And all of a sudden, they drop it. It becomes put into a cupboard and forgotten about. So if it's going to last, it needs to change their lives. They need to actually realize that Jesus is somebody who will change their life, who will forgive them, who will answer their prayer, who does talk to them on a regular basis. If they can see that this is real, that the theory and the practice go together, then they have a lot better chance at surviving. But also we try and tell people that, that it's not just a case of surviving. Um, you know, it can feel intensely selfish to decide to become a Christian when everybody in the family is against it. You know, I, I've experienced some opposition from from my nominal Christian family when I became a Christian, but it was nothing compared to the sort of opposition some people get. And I suppose there's two two ways I think about this. First of all, I had a huge heart operation six uh, years ago. I was called down to 18 degrees and for several hours and uh, had a, a aortic aneurysm oh, um, and um my my cardiologist would not be going through that i had huge amounts of post-operative pain because of the bone condition i have but but it, although my cardiologist herself would not be going through that i'm very glad that she still told me to have the operation because she saved my life but so when i speak to international students i know i'm not going to suffer the same things as, as they do but i still have a duty to tell them because it's going to save their life but the other thing is to say that um a bit like you know when you're on an airplane and if you ever do you do you watch the um uh, suls is doing their safety display or do you ignore them ah oh, good <laughs> well, I always watch them, partly out of embarrassment because you know, nobody else is watching uh, and they always say you know the, about the oxygen mask they always say put your own mask on first before helping others and uh, they always have like a, a picture of some of a helping a child or something and it always looks really selfish it's like hang on a second you know but surely you'd help mum or baby brother or whatever first but you've only got 15 seconds before you lose consciousness if you don't get your mask on first you can't help others in the same way that i have to tell people that you know if you don't choose to follow Jesus because you've got the best opportunity here your family are never going to know uh, and so for their sake you know you have to do this it's a really interesting way of, of turning it around and yeah uh, it's it's kind of it must be finding that balance as well of it's not down to you to save them <laughs> it's uh, find, finding that mix of they won't hear if you if you don't tell them but it's not down to you anyway <laughs> in some ways but it's, it's yeah. that tension uh, that we have to have to yeah. find um a couple of times i've had students tell me something along the lines of i'd rather go to hell with my mother yeah. than to be in heaven without her uh, and i think part of that comes from a, a kind of the taoist traditional chinese view of hell being like the underworld rather mm. than what, what Christians would believe it to be. Um, but So it's very naive, mm. but it, it kind of shows that sort of strength of feeling. But actually, uh, 
that's it's quite misguided and we have to actually be very open with people about when 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 they say that yeah yeah definitely i think the um it'd be interesting there's, there's a few other questions that we can touch on a little bit but i just sort of a, a sort of practical side of things so we obviously know there's there's a lot of international students in our towns i mean i'm in a town with uh six thousand from uh, 140 different countries um in, in guildford and so it's there's quite a lot here uh, but that that's not even the most diverse um university population around around the country but i'll be, be interested just just to put it out here so on this book it's partly for international students <laughs> uh, so it's do you see this as a, a resource for equipping churches as well or or, or what is the main audience just yeah. international students <laughs> i i quite recently i discovered my cousin who i haven't seen for about 10 years has bought my book <laughs> um it, it i think the answer to that question is that it is written for international students primarily. It's written to put into the hands of, of students who are asking questions who, uh, or maybe who would will ask questions, but they never got around to thinking about what questions to ask. Um, and uh, to, to put them in their hands and, and turn to the contents page and say, which of these 20 questions is the most you know, pertinent to you? Or do you have another one? Um, I mean, the writing of the book uh, it took about two hours to sit down and list the, the, the 20 questions that I most commonly get asked or versions of them. Um, so it, it's a book which I, I've written in a, in a particular way that you can just dip in um, at any any point. Apart from the first two out of the 20, the other 18 are not written in any particular order uh, on purpose so that you don't feel that you have to start at page one and go all the way through. But there has been interest from other people, uh, not just international students. Uh, I did also write it to help perhaps model uh, how to uh, answer people's questions from a different cultural perspective. But um, I think if I had written the book for a wider audience, then it would have lost its distinctiveness. So it's a book written for international students, which will be useful to people who come from a British background who maybe not students, but uh, if I'd written it for a more general population, it wouldn't have been applicable to international students. It had to be that way around, if you know what I mean. Definitely, definitely. Who, who, who want to put it in people's hands? Uh, who, who, yeah, who are asking these questions? Mm -hmm. um, so, I'm just just on that sort of side of things. How how much do you find that? At least in because you're you're in Oxford at the moment. Are you finding churches are on board with the, the recognition that there's so many internationals uh, in the town? Is it a mixed bag? Um, what, yeah, what kind I, of I no longer leave the Oxford work, by the way, um, but I did do for twelve years, and so my role now is national. So I go about university centres giving talks to international student groups. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in Oxford, Oxford is one of those places, one of three places in the country, Oxford, Cambridge and Bournemouth, that our organisation Friends International came out of. Uh, it came out of existing ministries from the local churches to international students. Um, it, it started in Oxford back in the 60s, really, where, where um, 
international students were, were experiencing so much racism from uh, from landladies in, in this in the city, and that um, the churches got together to um, uh, provide accommodation for international students, and it, it kind of stemmed from there. Uh, so the, the problem that we have probably in Oxford is that churches seem think they've seen it all, done it all, got the T-shirt, you know, moved on. Um, and it's quite hard to keep people back, uh, you know, staying on vision. I think Bournemouth also experienced that as well. I don't know about Cambridge. Um, but yeah, so I think people are very switched on to the fact they're international students. It's not just the the, the, the old university. Um, there's also Oxford Brooks, which has got tons of international students. I was international chaplain there for 10 years and lots and lots of language uh, students. Yeah. yeah, I think it's definitely that... Um... The aspect of when you when it's been around for thirty odd years, uh, how, how do we've got one generation that's very keen, just <laughs> then getting the next generations to to yeah. pick up the, the proverbial baton, uh, so to speak. Um, I know there's more just uh, a little bit of, a, of an aside, really, to to see what Friends International are doing. Uh, Dan, do you have, do you have any other questions about the book, particular or any other sort of cultural? Well, I just sort of um, interested. Like, what what are the most helpful things or Christians can can do that will make an, an impact on a on an international student? Um, again, I, I, I'm in South London. We don't have a lot of international students uh, that, that I'm aware of, mm. uh, unfortunately. But but I mean, for for, for people listening uh, or, or later watch, you know, what 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 sort of things make the biggest impact? You know, as as a, as a Christian for for international students. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, our life witness, but in community. So it's not just a kind of individual thing, but um, it, it's it's being invited to something where the, the Christians doing stuff together, you know, cooking a meal together, uh, being invited to, a, 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 I guess, a, a Christmas service or something. Um, this is why our model in Friends International of having a, a kind of weekly cafe or, or English practice club has been going for for thirty odd years because it, it, it's a model that works. It's it's not just they see the quality of our life, but they see how we interact with each other and how we interact with them. Um, I think also um, little things like just taking an interest in their background and their culture. I think this is a big problem for British people because um, we are rightly taught to. Uh, not kind of segregate people according to race or culture, but it, what means that we haven't given ourselves uh, the equipment to be able to inquire and to ask people um, about their background in case we get it wrong. You know, <clears throat> I'm from China, now I'm from Birmingham. Um, and um, we, we're really scared of making a mistake. So uh, what I would say is that that we need to be gently curious about people, uh, quick to apologize if we made a mistake. But one of the things that my wife has found is that people will get comfortable with her to a certain extent. Then they'll say something like, but we don't think of you as Chinese anymore. We think you're just like us. Now, she speaks her English as her first language. But what they mean is that, that now that she, now that they're used to her, they don't think of her as a foreigner. It essentially, it's like saying, oh, no, you're like us, meaning you're, English, but you just look a bit different. Assimilated. Yeah. So I think the, the people who 
In contrast, perhaps, to people who are born and grown up in this country, international students have an identity as internationals. They know they come from another country and they come here and nobody asks them. Nobody asks them about their culture. Nobody asks them about their country. Nobody asks them about their family back home. Uh, they become nobodies very, very quickly. Um, and um, just I found just by asking somebody about their background, asking them where they come from, uh, asking them what it's like if there if I don't know, and then listening to the answer and asking other questions, usually 99 times out of 100 is the best way to actually get people to talk. Um, but I think also um, just listening for those, the, the way that they talk about faith. Uh, and that's probably another, you know, whole big other question. But, but that, um, I'd say, you know, a witness in community, but also by showing an interest in people. I've, I've just also found an honesty around some of these bigger topics. So just even going on a walk with a, a student, what you were talking about before there's so uh, so many other cultures are just quite happy with their being transcendent being spiritual realms even spiritual experiences and it's just finding those common points of uh, we found just going on a walk and in this <laughs> yeah. time that's often the only thing you can do yeah. um and one, one of my favorite moments was with a, a chinese student who just started talking about spiritual experiences on top of mountains in China uh, while we were walking up in the Surrey Hills. And uh, what an opportunity. Oh, there's so many spiritual moments in, <laughs> in my faith on on mountaintops. And there's so much about mountains. Let's talk a bit about mountains in the spiritual realm. And and so it is getting to a point where, um, yeah, the, the questions. And I, I think so much of what I've learned about interacting with international students is also applicable across the board. As soon as you're starting to ask questions about backgrounds, you then start to try and contextualize that background. How can I ask a British student about their background in a way that they, they might open up? It is slightly different, um, but it's, it's a little bit, um, yeah, a lot of this stuff is, is just enhances the way that you you talk about faith uh, more openly maybe have a bit more confidence um but it is it's a lot of fun um there, there was another question on my mind but I'll, it's gone dan have you got anything no not on that that was that was helpful that was helpful i said i you know um i don't get an opportunity really to, to speak to many um mm. international students anymore since leave, leaving guildford so uh but it's uh it's an interesting interesting to know helpful to know mm. i think it was, oh, that's just what it was it was on that that point that you, you you're now like us <laughs> um <laughs> that that kind of point is that's come up in the conversations around race mm. quite a bit um the the sort of i think one of the dangers that can happen and i've seen this before with with friends who have been in the UK a long time and it'll be where you're from. Uh, I'm from Doncaster or something like that. And no, where, where are you really from? <laughs> uh, and, and it's when you, when you start going into that kind of uh, thing, that's when it starts becoming quite offensive quite quickly. And it's, it's just being aware of our own assumptions and, um, 
allowing the first answer to be the correct one <laughs> and then yeah. go oh from Doncaster whereabouts yeah. <laughs> and mm. and you can kind of start going into other other questions from that question rather than going no I don't think that's the right answer so yeah no, it's, it's quite interesting the need yeah. for recognizing difference um within within the church not expecting everyone to behave the same there's, there's a lot of themes just just sort of popped into my head as you're you're mentioning that sure. um so we look at one of these other questions i'm looking at the list on my my screen mm -hmm. and um this one's an interesting one number 16 is do christians believe other gods exist so with with islam it's a very strict monotheistic there are there are sort of spiritual beings but the only there is only one god yeah is that the same for for christianity yeah um so every, every year we, my wife and i do a a seminar in the word of life conference called uh, god's ghosts spirits and ancestors it's been dubbed the the ghostbuster seminar um and um and, and and basically what what we have found is that the reason that we did it was because we were finding students not necessarily christian students but people who are interested in christianity or were new christians uh who were from predominantly asia but that not exclusively so um certainly african students would put themselves in this category as well uh, they were finding that they were not getting answers from British churches regarding spiritual experience that did not fit into a uh, a, a kind of normal, should I say, normal Christian context. Um, they were, as I talked about earlier, um, working in the Path Lab in Singapore General Hospital, and people talking about spirits as a normal part of conversation. Uh, people were coming to us saying. We went to the church, we asked the pastor, they said, oh, we don't believe in ghosts, end of. So what do we do with this experience that we've had, which seems to suggest that we do, that there are those things, or that, um, as my friend described very uh, vividly, how she would wake up and find herself being feeling strangled and, and um, so on. So we had to then go right back to basics. So we didn't get into kind of spiritual warfare or anything like that. We basically taught a Christian cosmology. So we taught that, you know, pre-Genesis 1, if you like, um, how from Scripture it seems to be that, that you know, well, well we, know, we know that, that God created the heavens and the earth. And there was principalities and powers, etc., both seen and unseen. But under Satan, uh, some of them re rebelled and therefore we have spirits who are angels and we have spirits who are demons. And we then had to paint the picture that actually, when it comes to uh, um, non-Christian spiritual experience, ancestors, gods, spirits, and so forth, um, we are in the realm of uh, both um, misinformation or ignorance and also um, uh, spiritually inspired uh, de deception now that's quite hard to handle if you're not ready to hear it but that's the reality so uh, i recently read a, a, a biography um 
I think it's quite popular at the moment called By, By Pastor Surprise. I can't remember quite what the yeah. title is. Uh, an African pastor who came from a witch doctor's family. And um, he said that people ask him whether his parents' uh, witch doctor things, the things that they did, were they, uh, were they charlatans or were they real? And he said both. He yeah. said that, they, that his, his parents pulled the wool over people's eyes to get, get money. But at the same time, they also dealt in, in, the, in the real spiritual realm. Very dark, though. Um, and uh, I think Dan mentioned earlier, talk, talking about how in the West uh, other religions are seen as kind of a cool or interesting. But people who come from those backgrounds know that there's a real spiritual darkness there. Um, and um, spirit possession is very normal uh, and those sort of things. So we have to actually give them the framework to understand where these things come from. So in the book, I address the question as the simple answer for a Muslim as well, would be, no, there is only one God. But the definition of God is somebody who is transcendent, who is above all, who is infinite. There is only one God. But that doesn't mean to say there are not other spirits. Um, but those spirits would not be, in reality, what they would pretend to be. Yeah, that's helpful. I do find it fascinating that I look back on some of my experiences in Papua New Guinea that were... I say probably the most spiritual experiences that I've had that are not God. Um, and I know several times where we had to pray over things for things to stop happening. I'm uh, happy to discuss those at another time. And, mm-hmm. and so having that experience going into the, the Christian cosmology and, and understanding it, it's just, that's kind of, at least when I came to uni, it was very much like, well, that's, that's just the way of things. Sure. But for whatever reason, those spiritual experiences don't seem to happen as much <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> and you start second guessing yourself. Um, you start saying, oh, is this side of the world more naturalistic because we're naturalistic? <laughs> or is it the, the spiritual realm? Is it there's different deceptions going on? Um, so it's. Uh, yeah, I think I think they do happen uh, a lot, but, but we don't have a culture of act. Well, not so to the same extent. Mm. Uh, living in singapore just for example you know at every street corner well you've got a shop with a with a god shelf on you go past people's houses and you've got um uh, ancestral tablets and you've got um, idols uh, it's actively actively engaging in spirits is a normal part of life that is going to make um spiritual realities a lot more obvious whereas in the west partly because of the christian heritage but partly because of the way that we deal with these these things, they're either they're they're, they're hidden a bit more, uh, but they certainly are there. Dan, I'll be interested just out of your total curiosity. Have you have you experienced anything like that in the in the UK, or are you totally like is the concept of that kind of foreign to you? Or um, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean uh, i've had i've had you know uh, uh, things i could you know when i first came to christian i would say uh um you know it's kind of spiritual encounter with with god uh you know sort of transcendent experience mm. uh but i wouldn't say i've had anything since uh and i think i probably don't have don't live in expectation of that probably mm. wrongly uh but um mm. i i don't expect things like that and again i think that's 
uh you know i struggle as i said you know living in in what feels like this disenchanted culture uh where you know i'm kind of um catechized into 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 explaining things um you know through naturalistic explanations rather than a mm. kind of spiritual explanation uh when yeah. that, that when that could also um you know part, partly explain something um and i think that's something maybe more more so than others but i think that is something that's uh, quite unique about western christianity is is we are seeped in a an unspiritual culture um and um and and, and viewing everything in physical terms um sure and that's hard yeah mm. uh, yeah that, that is and, and, and i know that's um that shouldn't be the case, uh, but but it, but it is, uh, and something I'm very aware of, um, and I don't know how to change it. I think um, me and Phil have spoken about Michael Heiser um, and his and his sort of work in that, and I just find it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I just, I, it just because I just um, I kind of know he's onto something, but I don't know how to I don't know how to live like that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not coming across these things all the time. I don't live in that that way. Um, mm. uh, I remember as a as a new Christian, maybe about a year in, um, I was praying with a group of friends, and one of them had a, a terrible, <laughs> uh, shall we just say, demonic attack. Me, very serious for hours, uh, and I was scared with this, but I was also just didn't want to be part of it, um, and because I had no framework, I had no uh, nobody taught me about it. I, I knew from reading the Bible and the theory that these things should happen, but I had no equipment, no way of, I had no paradigm of dealing with it at all. And um, I just backed off. And um, I knew that if I admitted to the leadership of my church that that had happened, I thought I'd be in big trouble for causing problems. So I just kept quiet about it. Hmm. It's only now after years of kind of dealing with people from different cultures and so forth oh that's what happened <laughs> yeah. um but but from a day-to-day -day, uh uh perspective uh the students who come and talk to us have had those experiences but they don't necessarily bring those experiences into our world and we're not kind of constantly casting out demons i don't think i've ever done it in our work uh, but the, the reality is that they're experiencing things or they have experienced it. they have they need a framework of reference and so they go one of two ways they either get a, a, a christian understanding um or they shut up about it altogether um and they 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 go for a naturalistic explanation not that they really believe it but they end up they they learn very quickly not to talk about it because even talking to you in this fairly public forum hmm. i'm thinking probably think people think who is this guy you know <laughs> what kind of superstitious nonsense is he talking about uh, and and they will feel that a lot and so they'll just learn to shut up about it and not talk about it because even their christian friends are not talking about it yeah yeah i think i think that's the case i'm trying to think when the last time i talked about spiritual warfare or, or anything like that and we're a fairly charismatic church that we're part of so we, we we believe it's there and um i think a few of us would know or at least have had experience of sort of dealing with it to some extent but 
yeah, it's not it's not very well talked about even within the church. Um, the most important thing that people need to know is, from the student's perspective, is is not how to deal with the demon when he comes along. What they need to know more than anything else is that Jesus is supreme. Mm. You know, we 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 had that evening at our house, which eventually became a seminar, uh, and we we talked about we had to deal with each each of the individual issues that they brought up. One girl thought she'd seen a ghost. One girl was concerned about um, having a, a curse that was transferred onto her. Uh, and uh, one was talking about her dead grandmother who was could come back to haunt her, even though her grandmother was a nice person when she was living, all those sort of things. And we were just giving answers. But one thing that they said at the, at the end, are you telling us, therefore, that Jesus is more powerful than any of these things? And we said, yes. And, and that was what they needed to go with. Not, not any kind of hocus pocus, this is what you do if a demon comes along. They just needed to know that Jesus was Lord. Amen. <laughs> and uh, that simplifies a, a vast majority of silliness around spiritual warfare. I think mm -hmm. we do get caught up in the the method, uh, whatever that might be. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just it is that, that simple. Christ died, and he, he's defeated death and the principalities and powers of the sage. So this, he, he is Lord. Uh, mm -hmm. We work out the the bits following from that. Um, re re recognizing the time um aiming for the sort of one hour 30 mark at this point but i'm just really interested if you've got a sort of summary and i know it's in the book so people can answer the find the answer mm -hmm. in the book but if you're talking about so the, the most common question in the west that generally comes up if you have a mission week is why does god allow suffering and that's it that's in a western context um that, that's that's a big thing usually it's pointing to various continents where it's look at them they're suffering <laughs> how can god allow mm. allow that uh, maybe it's a personal thing someone's just died and, and there's a grief in element and, and so you, you kind of take it to a western i'm just really interested do you have a, a sort of summary of you've got a context of of let's say word alive you're answering mm. this question could, to a, a slight, oh, that, could i just add something to that that's yeah. all you're saying yeah. so I, I often hear that um, again, I don't even know if this is true. This is one of the things I hear people say mm. is that um, the, 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 the Western, I, well, I know we ask these questions. We're like, oh, well, look, look at all this suffering. How could, how could God possibly exist given all the suffering and, and evil of the world? Mm. And I often hear from other Christians, ask, oh, well, that's a very Western question to ask. Actually, in the rest of the world, they don't ask that question. It's 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 presumed yeah. that God exists, and actually, you know, evil is not seen as something that demonstrate God exists. It's something that fits within the the trans the, the transcendent framework that they have, and they're looking. Um, with is that the case, or is that something Western Christians just say? Uh, and actually, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that. Again, it might not be true, but that that people don't, you know, in non-Western context, don't see necessarily see evil as 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 a particular problem. Um, for, for theism or something like that. Sure. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a well put question, really, because um, uh, as a as an as a materialistic atheist, then I would have had to have said that um, suffering is, you know, just part of life. You know, as, as Richard Dawkins famously said, rather insensitively, some people get lucky, some people get hurt, and there's no reason for it. Well, easy to say if you're living in a nice house in Oxford. But um, I think you're right that there's, that there are certain uh, 
worldview uh, worldviews which have suffering at their core. So uh, the idea of karma um, that um, that your suffering is a result of uh, bad karma from a previous life and so forth. Uh, there is the 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 idea of Taoist idea of balance. That's either the yin and the yang. You know the the dark with the light in it, the light with the dark in it, that everything has to find its balance, that, you know, um, that there is good and there is bad, um, and um, good follows bad and bad follows good, that the universe will just even itself out. Um, then there's a student who was a Christian in China, but she was a very new Christian. She she was kind of importing some the Buddhist worldview idea of karma. And she said, uh, I, she said, I believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Of course, she also had to admit that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Hmm. Um, but the thing is, if you believe in um, Maya, that, that suffering is basically an illusion, or if you believe in um, in fate, or if you believe in chance in the materialistic atheist of view, basically all those are saying is that there is no answer. There is no answer for suffering. This is just how life is. Just we just have to deal with it as best we can, or we just have to suffer it because that is our fate. Uh, the only one I really speak up particularly against is is the idea of karma because I've seen that the karma adds to the suffering. You know, I have a friend who's quite disabled uh, from uh, her, her father is a Hindu, and she said, you know, um, it, her, her 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 grandmother thinks that she's a curse. She was born like this because she must have done something bad in her previous life. But you see, the logical conclusion to that is that, well, in countries where there is a lot of suffering, does that mean that all those people were bad in a previous life? I just can't can't accept that. Hmm. Um, so the idea of karma itself is to load somebody who is already suffering with a whole lot more suffering. Hmm. But the Christian view, I mean, we're kind of out of time, so I don't really have time to do this except quite glibly. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know the the uh, um, the kind of dichotomy, whatever you call it, the, the sort of logical sequence that says um, at the Epicurean paradox, I think it's called, uh, that, that, that God is all powerful, uh, God is all loving, suffering exists, and he says that only only two of those three can can prove so because we know that suffering exists. Then either God is not all powerful, he can't help us, or he's not all loving and he can, but he doesn't want to. And what I often say to students is that there is a fourth thing, that God is all-powerful, that God is all-loving, that suffering does exist, but God suffers. Uh, and that Jesus, you know, once Jesus came and, and uh, once the, the disciples saw Jesus on the cross, then there was no repeat of the book of Job in the New Testament. There was no wrestling with suffering as there was in the Psalms. They knew that they could, whatever happened, they could trust God because God had suffered. Uh, and that's well, something that I tried to uh, get across. I love that. That's a nice, succinct answer, given that you've only had a couple of minutes to answer it. So <laughs> I appreciate, appreciate it. And, and just showing that, yes, it is It is a question asked beyond the West, but that different perspective on it is, is really important. That it's not about my personal comfort that's been affected or their personal comfort that's necessarily been affected. And even in that, it's a it's it's a placing myself. This is this is how everyone else should live. And because they're not living like this, they they should they must be suffering. That's generally a probably a, a 
Christ way of putting it. As you were saying it, and maybe just wonder when you're talking about, you know, like um, the, the sort of culture you look at, you could look at a Dalit or something, you know, and say, well, um, you know, actually you're not, you're insignificant and your suffering is actually evidence of how insignificant you are to the God, to God or the gods. Yeah. Whereas yeah. The, the gospel is actually saying, no, uh, no matter your circumstances, your suffering, you are significant, and 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 you know, and and the gospel you know reinforces that. Uh, in fact, so significant that God stepped down, became a man, and and yeah. lived and suffered for for you. you know, it's yeah. just the polar opposite. I mean, that that's that's good news. Like, yeah. yeah, you're poor, you're suffering, but you are significant to God. You matter. Yeah. Whereas other like, there's no way out. Is actually, actually, this is this is proof of of how. You, know, you don't Love. you don't matter yeah. yeah god doesn't care about you and neither will anyone else it's it's yeah. a it's a it's a offers no way out um it's a horrible uh, when you just say it, it just sounded just when you talk about how added weight of suffering mm. it's just such a horrific mm. way to, to 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 think or look at people to look at someone through that lens i just can't i can't imagine mm. sure thinking like that yeah but it comes to mind the the two corinthians I think it's this first chapter where it's the suffering of Christ we share in his comfort. <laughs> if we find comfort in, in our sufferings because we share in the sufferings of Christ yeah. and there is yeah a huge, a huge part of that, that is beautiful <laughs> when you're in suffering to know that, that God, we have a God who has bled. Um, and even like Hebrews, we, we suffer with those who suffer, not, yeah. not look down and, you know, more for you are oh, bad luck yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah it's good stuff yeah. so we we have come to the hour 30 mark and we really, really appreciate your time peter but we have we have one question i said the same questions beginning and end uh cool. just uh what resources would you recommend about other than your own book oh, of course <laughs> we, we will make sure that's yeah. recommended there's a link in the description to get that book from friends international's website and uh hopefully a plan to to have it on other bookshops at some point but while buying the book you're also supporting a very good uh organization and uh, i might say that i'm paid to say that as i work for them as well <laughs> um, but yeah it, it's good fun working with them uh so just some resources to add to that um things that you found helpful in preparing for your book um podcast music what whatever you found helpful um, well, first of all, um, I won't be doing uh, kind of many book recommendations per se, but this one is probably the most helpful go-to uh, about the subject of contextualization. You look and see it's beautifully thin. Oh, um, I like that. Could you, could you <laughs> read out the title and author for our podcast listeners? Yeah, so contextualization, a theology of gospel and culture by Bruce J. Nichols. Um, and... Um, a little bit, well, a bit bigger, um, but very highly recommended if you want to kind of get into the, the, the um, topic a little bit more. Uh, contextualization in the New Testament, uh, Patterns for Theology and Mission, and that is by Dean Fleming. Dean Fleming. Now, both of those are moderately heavy, not heavy, but you know, fairly serious books. Uh, there's, if you can find anything by Dwayne Elmer, um, he writes much more about the kind of 
nuts and bolts of crossing cultures and 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 having a humble approach to other cultures uh, i recommend anything by him but in terms of the preparation for the book I, I didn't particularly do it in a considered way but what i found myself doing was reading and reading and reading i think i read about 120 books uh, which were mostly um biographies of um in, in from mission situations uh, so from uh, or, or people coming to faith from other backgrounds from, from coming to faith from other religions uh, i read books about suffering church so i ended up learning a lot about uh, parts of the world that i'm not so familiar with the south america and africa as well as asia uh, and the middle east and i found that the more i read um uh, about the lives of christians around the world uh, I've, the more I kind of realized that actually the, uh, the God that I worship is exactly the same God that the Christians on the other side of the world worship. And, and their experience of him is the same because he's the same person. But also as a byproduct of that, I just was struck with how real God is uh, and um, how he answers prayer and how he works in the physical realm as well in miracles all around the world. So uh, that was uh, the preparation for the book. There's some uh, good resources there. Um, I'm going to have to look them up. I'll be, I'll be adding them to my Amazon wish list or, <laughs> or other bookseller. <laughs> one book that I felt was particularly helpful for looking at the whole issue of uh, colonization um, was a book with a fantastic title. Uh, it's quite an obscure title uh, called The Man with a Bird on His Head. The Man with a okay. Bird on His Head. And it's a... It's, um, uh, by uh, Y1 Publishing Publications, and it goes into a story of how uh, the gospel came to the South Pacific, um, and the uh, the people there, uh, the, the Christians there who brought the gospel throughout the local culture, and so because the the local people uh, lost their cultural identity through the gospel. They um, they started what these cargo cults, the John from cults, where John from America would come and bring in all these lovely things. And then this guy called John, who worked for YWAM, uh, actually was used by the God to bring the gospel properly contextualized back to these people. It's an amazing story, but also helps us to see the mistakes we've done made in the past, but also how we uh, the God has helped us to be able to correct them. I've added that to Amazon wish, my Amazon wish list to remind me to get that one. No, that's, that sounds really interesting. I've yeah, come across that one before, but yeah, I think it's been on my list for a little while. I'm going to have to bump it up the list. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Um, to be with you. It's, uh, yeah, always a pleasure talking to you and working with you. So uh, thank you for coming on and we'll be speaking to you again soon for our actual uh, Friends International Guildford stream at some point. A little, a little bit less long, uh, but it'll be no less interesting. Cool. Well, yeah, thank, right. thank you, Peter. It was really interesting. Thank you. We've got just some comments coming through. Just a, a thanks from Carfoon, another colleague. Uh, thank you for watching. Thank you for Claire as well for, for watching, and thanks for joining us. Um, oh, that's me. I'll turn that one off. Um, good. <laughs> so... I'll, I'll just finish up. Dan, is there anything else you want to say? No, I just, other than I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your book, Peter. I will get a copy. Thank you. <clears throat> Good.
Cool. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, everyone, for watching. We will have a break next week. Uh, we haven't actually got anything in uh, scheduled in. Dan and I need to have a conversation at some point about what's coming up. We have got further down the line, we've got uh, Peter Williams, one of the many. It's the uh, one who's written, <laughs> Can We Jay. Trust Peter J. There's a couple of them as well. Peter J. Williams, who's written, Can We Trust the Gospels? That's, that's going to be in April. Uh, so looking forward to that. We've also got David Robson coming up some time at point. Is that April? April? Well, think, That's yeah. April as well. So April's going to be a big month. We've got to figure out what's happening in March. We have also got over 300 subscribers, and we've not had a, a bit of a Q&A for that. So we'll try and do that in the near future. But uh, we'll let you know through the social media stuff. So thanks for joining in. Thanks, Ivana. Just noticed that uh, comment. Thank you very much. And... Uh, have a good rest of your evening. We'll stop it there. Have a good night. Are you not Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear, please do give us a subscribe on YouTube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback. Get in touch, let us know what you think. If you really enjoyed the content and want to support it, find us on patreon.com.